Welcome back to the program. A young Johnny, played by Marlon Brando in the movie The Wild Ones, is asked what it is he's rebelling against. His answer, what have you got? Rebellion, the desire to shape one's identity, has long been a part of the adolescent experience. Today, however, we know so much more about it, about what goes on inside the brain that shapes that rebellion and that quest for identity. What we also understand, but perhaps as parents don't always practice, is the kind of virtuous circle or feedback loop that results when parents react to that adolescent behavior. What we know now is that that behavior isn't fixed, but that it's profoundly influenced by action and reaction in ways that have a lifetime impact. Few understand this better than my guest, Dr. Daniel Siegel. He's a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine, He's co-director of the UCLS Mindful Awareness Research Center and executive director of the Mindsight Institute. He's a graduate of Harvard Medical School and the author of two classic parenting books, Parenting from the Inside Out and The Whole Brain Child. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Daniel Siegel here to talk about Brainstorm, the power and purpose of the teenage brain. Daniel Siegel, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Great to have you here. One of the things that underlies so much of specifically what you talk about is this idea that we need to stop looking at adolescence as something to be dreaded, something to be avoided, something to be fearful about, that in fact there's a lot of positive that comes out of that experience for both child and parent. Well, that's right. You know, the amazing thing when you look at the myths that are out in the culture is so many of them are negative. They see the adolescent period in ways that are not only um, wrong, but they're actually unhelpful for the adolescent or the adult supporting their development. So uh, in Brainstorm, I wanted to really clarify what those myths are, see what the truths are, and then see how you can actually optimize this period of time to make it not only the best it can be, but also to set you on a course into adulthood that's really more positive than seeing things as just going through uh, the negative parts of these myths. And part of that negativity comes out of what is normally the parental reaction. In fact, the way parents often react feeds into the worst parts of that behavior. Well, exactly. I mean, that's the the, um, way it all is a kind of negative feedback loop that reinforces the negativity. I mean, one simple example is if you're told the myth, which so many people are told, that adolescence is just a time of raging hormones that you can't do anything about, well, for the adult seeing an adolescent, they're going to interpret all sorts of things that they don't understand as the outcome of hormones that are raging, which is, first of all, not true. But secondly, that view makes the adolescent themselves feel helpless. Because what are you going to do when your hormones are raging around, whatever that means? Instead, when you see that the changes in the adolescent mind, you know, how we feel and think, and in adolescent behavior, what we do in our interactions with others or the risk-taking things that we do as adolescents, as actually an outcome of the way the brain is remodeling itself, then you can do something about it. And you can not only understand it, but you can actually use your mind to change the structure of your brain. That's the exciting thing. And, you know, that's what we can really do in what you're doing in media and what we can do just from science and looking this at uh, looking at this as parents or as anyone supporting adolescents is get the truth out there so that adolescents themselves can then learn the skills to actually strengthen the brain. 
And in fact, much of this behavior, much of the mythological behavior with respect to adolescence is very clearly defined as a result of the developing brain, the way in which the brain does develop in those years between 12 and 24. Exactly. And, you know, it's really helpful to think about this. You know, if your if your childhood is going pretty much pretty well and you are at home, it's certain, it's familiar, it's safe, what would nature have to do to your being, your, let's just talk about your brain, to get you to go to the uncertain, to go toward the unfamiliar, to go toward the potentially unsafe that is the world outside your familiar, certain, and safe home? So in many ways, you can see as a starting place, adolescent uh, changes are all about getting ready to leave the home nest. And when you look at how the brain does that, it's actually pretty fascinating and really useful because you can then harness the upside of these changes to optimize development and understand the downsides, the risks, the ways in which maybe emotions are sometimes uh, more intense during adolescence so that you can learn to, for example, ride the wave of your emotion, become a surfer of those waves rather than feel like, oh, my God, there's nothing I can do. Hormones are just making me out of control. Or even worse, people think adolescence is some period of immaturity that you just got to hurry up and get through and hopefully you'll make it out alive rather than seeing it as an incredible period of courage and creativity that you can actually cultivate well. What is it that's changed from an evolutionary perspective or a broader social perspective that has extended the period of of adolescence into the 20s and starting as early as it does around 12? Yeah, you know, that's such a fantastic question. Um, In reviewing the research for the book, I drew on a lot of different areas of science, as I do in a field I work in called interpersonal neurobiology, where we weave together all the different sciences, so from math and physics to chemistry and biology all the way to psychology and anthropology. So from an anthropological point of view, we do know that um, hundreds of years ago, the age at which sexual maturation called puberty happened, and puberty is actually a complex process, but in general, it was actually later. And I was just looking at the graphs last night uh, to see how it's happened over these hundreds of years. But as far as we could tell, you used to go through puberty around 15 or 16 years of age. And then the period between this onset of sexual maturation, where your body was changing, and taking on adult responsibilities of work and of family, that was for a female was about two years, so around 18, more or less. And for males, it was three or four years, so 19 or 20. So the adolescent period, if you defined it very simply as that period of time between childhood dependence and adult responsibility, it's just the simplest way of defining it, was around two years for females and three or four years for males. Now it's, you know, starting not at 15 or 16, but actually sometimes before the teen years, puberty at least, uh, and we don't really, in this culture, in Western culture in the U.S., we don't really settle down to adult responsibility until well into the 20s. And when we looked at the brain, which is the new exciting uh, aspect of science we can draw on, that's only about a dozen years old or so, we actually can see that the brain continues to remodel itself in really surprising ways deep into the 20s, the mid-20s. So it's really the second dozen years of life in modern times, which is a much longer period than ever before. 
Talk a little bit about that remodeling because it is in that process that so much of what we see in terms of behavior is taking place, this pruning and specialization and all the other aspects that you talk about. Absolutely. You know, what's really neat about remodeling and, and what I try to say in the book and when I, when I talk at schools, you know, is the reason to know about it is not only does it let you know what's actually happening, and that's always good to know the truth, but it's something you can do something about. So the mind, the way you focus your attention as part of what the mind is within awareness, actually has now been shown to be able to change the function and structure of the brain. So by knowing what I'm about to say about remodeling, you, if you're listening to this as an adolescent or you as an adult who actually once was an adolescent and wants to recover some of these things, or you as an adult taking care of adolescents and supporting their growth, this can actually help do something very practical. So it's not just knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's actually very practical, science-based information that leads to changes in what you do with your life that actually improve your well-being. So for me as a parent and for me as a clinician, uh, I really want to make sure that me as a scientist is offering not only things that are true, but then as a parent and as a clinician, that what's being offered is actually useful to make positive changes. So here's what we know. The first thing uh, is we're talking about a word called remodeling. So rather than thinking about the brain as immature or being disrupted by hormones that are going nuts or, you know, that it's uh, just unable to develop because it's such a, a, a period of immaturity, instead think of it this way. The first dozen years of life, you've set up a foundation and you're soaking in the knowledge of adults. That's childhood. That's great. Wonderful. We can go to an elementary school and see how kids are doing that. In middle school and high school, once you hit the adolescent period, roughly around when puberty starts, but they're not exactly the same, these changes in the brain that surprised everyone include two dimensions that we call the general term remodeling. So it's like you've set up the foundation, and now you're going to take this house, which is pretty strong once you're a 10-year-old, and you're going to actually remodel it. So it's not that it's immature. You're not building a new house. You're not ripping down the old one. You're actually reshaping it. So the remodeling has two parts to it. One is called pruning, and the other is called myelination. The pruning, what's that? Just like when you go to a garden and there's too much growth, let's say, on a tree, and you want it to grow really in a healthy way, and so you prune away aspects of it so the sunlight can hit it in a positive way or it grows in a shape that's most useful for where it is in your garden, Pruning literally involves taking away the basic cells of the brain and their connections, and these are called neurons, and the connections that neurons make with other neurons are called synapses. So pruning is literally with genetic push, shaped by experience, probably worsened by stress, actually destroying intentionally, so this isn't like some form of illness or some problem, but it's pruning away your garden of your brain so you're actually getting less synaptic connections among the neurons and less neurons themselves. This surprised everyone. You would think that growth would be just getting more and more and more. But once you go through your childhood and you develop more and more of these synapses, the connections, and the neurons, now adolescence is saying, hey, you've set up your foundation. In a sense, let me specialize 
you know, I'm going to have the use it or lose it principal work, where would I continue to use a foreign language, a musical instrument, an athletic sport I'm doing, um, ways I engage with other people, things that I do with my attention, streaming energy and information flow through my mind, stimulates the growth of these circuits in the brain, the foundation of which was laid down in childhood, and now you're strengthening them, but the ones you don't use, like I didn't learn Chinese, or I'm not playing the piano, or I never played soccer, you know, pretty soon those circuits that were there as potentially activated when I was a child, they start to wither away. Now, when adolescents hear this, they go, oh, no, 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 I don't want to lose those potentials. And I say, okay, I appreciate your concern to, you know, <laughs> to you know, freak out. But if you do want to use the potential, learn a language early. Learn a sport early. Learn your musical instrument early. Um, these are things we can inform adolescents about and also teachers and, and uh, educators who structure our middle school and high school experiences should work with the elementary school and say, from a brain point of view, these things should be taught earlier. So that's the pruning part. Um, pruning may be, by the way, one of the reasons in people who are genetically at risk or experientially at risk or for other reasons at risk that their circuits are not optimally formed during childhood. You may not see it in childhood, but with the pruning process, vulnerable circuits may be pruned down, revealing inadequate amounts now once you've pruned them down. And that may be the reason why we know from science that if you're going to develop one of the major psychiatric disorders, it's most likely to happen during the adolescent period. And now with the pruning part of the remodeling, we understand, okay, this is probably the reason why. And the good news about knowing that information is if you think you're vulnerable, you can learn ways to increase the growth of necessary circuits for what's called regulation. And I teach that in the Brainstorm book in these mindsight skills sections. And to support the second part of remodeling, which is myelination. Myelin, M-Y-E-L-I-N. Myelin is the, the healthy sheath that can be laid down among connected neurons. And it basically helps their communication with each other be more efficient. And to give you the numbers, when we watch, you know, Olympics, let's say you're watching the Winter Olympics now as they're coming up, you know, when you watch these athletes do their amazing feats and you go, oh, my God, I could never do that, you're absolutely right because you didn't do the practice that athlete did to lay down myelin, which allowed their neurons that are involved in that skiing thing or whatever they're doing in their sport to be 3,000 times more effective than yours because Myelin is laid down with practice that creates skills. And so we can actually offer these practices, uh, I call them mindsight practices, that lay down myelin and increase the connectivity among the existing neurons. So ultimately, remodeling then is those two things. It's pruning, cutting away neurons and their connections, the synapses, and it's myelin, taking the remaining neurons and their connections and laying down myelin to allow them to be more effective in how they coordinate, not only how fast they are, but how they coordinate with each other. And ultimately, the word we use for that whole, whole process of remodeling is called integration. The adolescent brain will become more specialized in what it can do because it's becoming more integrated as it links these differentiated areas to each other. So it's a good thing. This remodeling is really, really good. And we want to just support it happening in an optimal way. 
by reducing stress, by increasing sleep, by having kids eat well, by having them engaged in things they love, by in, engaging in certain things of the essence of adolescence, which we can talk about, that can support a, uh, our whole culture, supporting adolescents developing these really wonderful aspects of this period of time. And working backwards to this, one of the things you talk about as the core is this idea of, of essence, and you use the initials to define those things that are part of, that feed in to what you've been talking about. Well, this acronym, uh, you know, is the idea of what's the essence of adolescence, and as I was exploring the research and discovering that there were four fundamental features of adolescence, if I could uh, reorder them and name them, they actually spelled the word essence. So here's what it is. Essence is spelled E-S, and that is the emotional spark part of adolescence we can talk about. S-E, the next part of essence, is social engagement. So emotional spark, social engagement. N is novelty, that adolescents seek novelty. And uh, the last part of essence, so emotional spark, social engagement, novelty, and C-E is creative exploration. So you, if you go through them one by one, the, the take-home message to make sure everybody listening hears about, and the thing I got so excited about in just writing this and this coming out was this essence of adolescence, which comes from the changes in this remodeling adolescent brain, are actually the very thing we need as adults to keep our brains growing well throughout the lifespan. So if you had to pick the top four factors of life that are associated with healthy brain growth throughout the lifespan as an adult, they would be an emotional spark, this passion, feeling vital, feeling energized about your life, social engagement, supportive relationships, best predictor, not only brain growth, but of how long you live, your happiness, your mental health, your medical health, Novelty, when you seek out novelty as an adult, even though we tend to do the same old, same old, but if you intentionally try to find novelty, you actually will stimulate the growth of healthy aspects of your brain. And finally, creative explorations is how we imagine and think about all sorts of new things and new combinations. And it's something that really has its uh, wonderful emergence in adolescence. But we should never give up not only creative explorations, any of this stuff. So one of the messages to say about the passion of adolescence where literally the emotional circuits are more active and driving uh, our feelings to influence our thinking in a much bigger way, we shouldn't let that passion go and we need to learn to really harness that in a positive way in adolescence itself. So that's emotional spark. Social engagement, you know, adolescents push away from their, their parents. They need to. Nature needs to get them ready to leave the nest. Now, as a parent myself of you know, two kids basically through their teens, you know, it, I felt rejected. I felt hurt. <laughs> I felt like, what, what have I done wrong that they're pushing away from me? But in fact, nature makes it so that to leave the safe, the familiar, the certain, they got to have something change in their brain to make them go for the unsafe, the unfamiliar, and the uncertain. And that's moving toward, in this part, toward their, their peers. The end, the novelty, when you look at changes in the brain and what's called the reward circuits and also in the what are called evaluative circuits, and I'll do these one by one, the reward circuits are driven by a, a chemical called dopamine 
And the patterns in dopamine change that the research has shown are basically, uh, the, the overall statement is for anyone, when you do something rewarding, you release dopamine. And so that makes you feel like that was worth doing. And that can be any number of things. Um, novelty for any of us is one of the main things that releases dopamine. Now, what nature has done is made it so the baseline levels of dopamine are lower, some research studies suggest, and other research studies reveal that the release levels are higher. So what this does for the subjective experience of an adolescent is it makes you kind of bored and restless with the same old, same old, and you want to have that dopamine release so your baseline low levels are um, changed by the release of them, so you want to do novel things. Now, the downside of all these, there's a downside and upside to all these things. The downside of this is risk-taking behavior, you know, the thrill of doing something dangerous. Um, but, of course, the upside is you've got to do something dangerous, which is leaving home. So the brain has got to do that. Now, um, the other thing besides this dopamine change in the reward circuits is called uh, the evaluative circuits, and, and this leads to what researchers call, and this is a tough term because it doesn't really intuitively makes sense, but it's called hyper-rational thinking. And essentially what the evaluative circuits are doing, they evaluate the things you're considering doing. So they overemphasize a focus. They put attention on and meaning to and feel good about the positive side. Like if I want to drive 100 miles an hour at 1 in the morning on a surface street, I think, oh, this is so exciting. I've been doing a video game like this. Now I have a car. I'm 16. I can drive. What would it be like to drive 100 miles an hour? So, of course, that has a thrill to it. But the negative side, of course, is I could hurt someone or hurt myself or kill somebody or myself. So the evaluative circuits overemphasize the positive aspect, de-emphasize the negative. So rather than what adults think is it's impulsivity or it's not being informed, adolescents are usually pretty informed dangers. They know about them. And it's not really, in the beginning it may be impulsivity, but later on in adolescence you can plan out an action that for an adult, they look at that and go, what in the world was that adolescent thinking? Or what were you thinking when you were an adolescent? And the way to understand it is this hyper-rational balancing act of the evaluative circuit saying, I'm going to focus on the positive, which of course is nature's way of letting you focus on the thrill of leaving home and not worry too much about the dangers. And all of this stuff then has a positive side. And what we want to do is get adolescents in touch with their intuition because they're not going to just listen to a parent saying, don't do that, that they're kind of programmed not to listen to their parents. Um, you want to give them an internal compass of literally gaining access to what their heart is saying, what their intestines are saying, so that you can give them a gift that keeps on giving. This tool, which I teach in, in the Mindsight Skills part of Brainstorm, is really something that allows them to know their own guide. Do they want to do something does it feel right? And the person thinking of driving 100 miles an hour might go, you know, it sounds really exciting. My peers would love me to do it. So of course, I'm an adolescent. I'm more likely to do it. But, you know, my heart is saying there's something not right about this. And my gut, not my parents, not my friends, but my own gut is telling me there's something wrong about this. I think I won't do it. So it doesn't guarantee anything, but I think we make it much more likely that we'll minimize risky behaviors to that. And finally, the creative explorations is just the way the, the mind literally is thinking about things outside the box, considering new ways of doing things. And this has the negative side of, you know, adolescents can feel disoriented and confused, and why can't I just accept the status quo of the adult world? Why am I always questioning things? So that can be very upsetting. 
but the upside is, you know, the thrill of, of creation and innovation. And as you probably know, you know, the, the, um, the discoveries in art and music and technology and science, these innovations primarily come from adolescent minds. And so we need to honor that. And there's all sorts of uh, discussions I'm having with people in education to think, how can you take this essence of adolescence and really reshape the curriculum and the, the process, not just the content of what's taught, but the way it's uh, experienced by middle schoolers and high school uh, adolescents and maybe even college, uh, so that you can actually capitalize on the emotional spark, the social engagement, the novelty and the creative explorations in a really positive way where it's a win-win situation. The adolescent can feel engaged. The teachers can be used as consultants to support the adolescent's essence. And I think if we did this, we'd be harnessing an incredible courage and creativity to actually solve some of the world's problems that we could lay out in front of these adolescents saying, you know, we adults haven't figured them out, but you can work collaboratively uh, with the passion you have to deal with things in new ways to creatively explore new solutions and we'll be your supporters, we'll be your consultants, but we can't tell you what to do because we just can't. We haven't figured it out. You figured it out. I'll bet you we can really tap into a huge source of positive change in the world. Is there a balance that goes on or a rebalancing of these things depending on the individual child? And what does that tell us? Some that might be more emotional, more passionate, some that are more focused on social engagement, etc. That the balance of all these is not the same in each child. Completely. No, I think that's a really good point. You know, in Parenting from the Inside Out, um, Mary Hartson and I wrote about, you know, the importance of parents knowing themselves. But we really want to make it clear that even though attachment research shows what you give as a parent is the best predictor, how you make sense of yourself, how you connect with your child, is the best predictor of your child's attachment to you, the child's temperament uh, is independent of attachment, and it's going to shape the balance of things just like you're talking about. And in Whole Brain Child, Tina Bryson and I you know, show you ways of helping to integrate your child's brain uh, but temperament is going to affect how each child is and how each child responds to your interventions as a parent. And so taking a deep breath and knowing that exactly what you're saying is completely true, that everybody goes on this journey through life in their own unique way, we can identify patterns of behavior like the importance of relationships, but some kids aren't as interested in relationships. Some kids are more interested in, you know, internal work. Uh, some are, are, you know, more introverted. Some are more extroverted. There's Lots of different dimensions. There are a number of different ways of looking at temperament. There are, you know, 20 different variables you can examine. There are uh, different models you can you can explore. So there's there's no definitive way of saying this is my child's temperament. Therefore, this will be the outcome. So I love the way you're saying it. That every individual is unique. That we can talk about the general, let's say, the essence. And for some, you know, the emotional spark may be pretty intense and may give them all sorts of challenges, uh, that for others, you know, it's pretty calm. Yes, they're more emotional, but it comes out in subtle ways. And that doesn't mean that one child's having a disorder and the other isn't. In fact, 80% of adolescents, you know, don't have a tumultuous time uh, that we, we hear all the time about, 80%. So the idea that adolescence has to be filled with, you know, all this tension and suicidal thoughts and depression, it's just not true. It's just not true. 80% do not. 
Now, you can also be without a disorder and have intense emotions. So the really exciting thing about this possibility of changing our cultural conversation and for everyone to know about the brain is you can learn ways of focusing your mind. Let's say you're that person whose balance is you have more emotional intensity than your, your average bear, uh, social engagement, you love being with your friends, novelty, well, you don't really care about novelty too much, but you love taking risks and creative explorations, well, you just like to do your homework. Let's say that's your, your profile, if you will. Well, for that individual, they may really need the kind of tools that we know help increase what's called affect regulation. Affect is emotion. The ability to balance and calm your emotions. Um, so for people who've learned those skills, if they have a temperamental variation where they have more intense emotions, it really can be that if you've learned the skills, you'll be fine. But if you have that temperament and don't learn the skills and you get a particular stressor, you know, you're in a certain school or you get rejected from a girlfriend or boyfriend or something, you know, and your emotions throw you for a loop and your stress is massively increased, all that can cycle down into creating a problem for you. Whereas if you learn the skills, even with those stressors, you could learn to balance them. Whereas someone else could benefit from the skills, but they don't really need, need, need them. They, you need them. They will benefit from them, but, you know, they might do kind of okay without them. So we need to recognize, just as you're saying, that different individuals will have different aspects of this to different degrees of intensity, and that does not make it a disorder. If there is something going on that you think your adolescent or you yourself as an adolescent think is beyond uh, this essence, that your emotions are really driving you mad or you, you're totally isolated or, you know, you can't stand taking risks, there's all sorts of things that, um, may be extreme that professional support can be really helpful. But in most cases, you know, 80%, it isn't. And you can benefit from learning to strengthen your mind and more get a more integrated brain. And finally, does that temperament, can that temperament change during adolescence as a result of this neuroplasticity that we've been talking about? Yeah, you have this, the most magnificent questions, i got to say. <laughs> this is great. Um, Yes, you know, it's such a beautiful way you, you phrase the question because, um, first of all, uh, one needs to always take a deep breath and say, when you're talking about science, and we're talking about the science now of temperament, um, the scientists themselves have big, heated arguments, of course, depending on their temperament, how emotional they get about it. Um, and so uh, some scientists believe temperament predicts most things. Uh, but if you read a, a beautiful book called... Um, something like uh, Your Emotional Brain uh, by Richie Davidson um, and, and uh, Sharon Begley, you'll see that Richie uh, Davidson reviews the science of temperament and says that, look, if you have a temperamental pattern, let's say when you're one and two and three, um, and then examine this child at that age, let's say who's now eight or nine or ten, uh, for the majority of people, 80%, um, they will not have any way their temperament is at 9 or 10 that was predicted by how they were at 1, 2, or 3, that we're always changing depending on our experiences, uh, depending on the unfolding of development, all this stuff. However, if you're in an outlier group of the 20%, maybe 10% to either extreme like, you know, you're super, super sensitive and reactive versus you're super outgoing and you don't really care about what your emotional response is, you just want to dive into new things. Those people on the outside, 10% on one side, 10% on the other side, 
when they've been studied, uh, this is the 20%, you can predict how they'll be at 8, 9, or 10. So the same is true then when they hit adolescence. Adolescence is a period of great remodeling. People change all the time. And for 80% of the individuals, they're going to be changing in ways you can't predict. You know, they're going to be shaped by their peers, shaped by how their parents deal with them, shaped by their attachment history. All sorts of things will influence them. And it's an open issue about how they turn out. I know that from my own two kids, you know, as they've gone through or they're still in adolescence in their 20s. But, you know, they're still changing in ways you could never have predicted from when they were younger. So we just need to be open to who they are and support them as best we can. For the outliers, the 10% one way or the other, um, you know, the studies by Jerome Kagan show that, in fact, you can show that those traits continue through adolescence. However, the way parents have handled their support for that adolescent, the way there's a match between the adolescent's temperament and the way the parent is basically accepting of that temperament supportive of it, can determine the outward expression of an inward temperament. So Kagan's view basically is that you will still have reactivity if you have reactivity, but if your parents have supported you, his research shows, you'll actually, in a sense, be able to overcome any reticence you have to engage in new things, even though your brain, if you put your, this person in a scanner in their early 20s, they're still an adolescent, they'll show reactivity, but they've learned to overcome it with their behavior. They learn, hey, I may be reactive, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't do a new thing. Whereas someone who wasn't supported in that kind of way by their parents, they'll stay super reserved. They won't engage in new things. They'll be frightened of the world. Um, and, and the research shows that what parents do has a direct impact on how, it, how an individual moving through adolescence will wrestle with temperaments that put them on the extreme and either be able to overcome them and do fine in life and actually externally be completely uh, on. You can't detect that there's an internal process going on. They've learned to overcome it, even though the brain studies show they still have it. Um, and so what parents do really matters. And in the Brainstorm book, that's why I wanted to put in basically in the last quarter of the book, you know, how can you be present to support your adolescent with not only a safe harbor where they can come back and feel nurtured and connected, but a really solid launching pad. So you support them in going out in the world. And, and, uh, and that's for exactly the issue you're bringing up, that even if you have a genetically shaped temperament, um, what you experience with neuroplasticity, how the brain changes in response to experience, will continue to help you develop in a positive, more integrated way. And that's what we really want to support. Uh, our adolescents doing and ourselves because if you're listening to this and say hey I want that essence back in my life mm. the great news is it's never too late we as adults are continuing to grow too so you can get this essence back in your life as well Dr. Daniel Siegel the book is Brainstorm the Power and Purpose of the Teenage Brain it's just out from Torture Penguin Daniel I thank you so much for spending time with us today oh this was fantastic thank you so much for the honor thank you we'll take a break I'll be right back 